Welcome to the Crazy Beautiful Life podcast. My name is Bethany, most people call me B, and I'm your host. This podcast covers topics like women's health and wellness, periods, hormones, personal development, mindset, and so much more. This podcast will help inspire you to live your most crazy beautiful life. Welcome along. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crazy Beautiful Life podcast. My name is Bethany. Most people call me B, and I'm so excited that you're here, right here, right now, listening to this episode. Today's episode is an Estrogen Empire topic, so welcome back, Estrogen Empire. If you're new around here, I have a lot of new listeners. So if you're new, The Estrogen Empire is a series that I started while I was finishing university. And basically, it's a podcast series dedicated to topics around women's health, perinatal health, hormonal health, and menstrual health. So all sorts of things in that wheelhouse with regards to assigned female at birth and topics like that. Now, the reason why I chose the title Estrogen Empire for this series is because all of us, all humans have estrogen in their bodies just in different expressions. So my intention was to make the estrogen empire a trans inclusive community where we can talk about, um, issues that affect people who are assigned female at birth, um, and really just get conversations going around stigma and advocate for change and provide some education and things like that. So welcome back estrogen empire. I have missed you guys. I'm so excited to talk about today's episode because it has been something that I've been meaning to talk about since 2020 and I just hadn't found the right time to do it. But recently I've really, um, refound that, that love of, uh, this specific topic and not that I love the topic, but just really refound that passion for advocating for this topic. So in today's episode, we are going to be talking about perinatal or postpartum depression. So if that is not supportive of your journey, if this episode is triggering for you, then I recommend just skipping this over. We are going to cover topics such as depression, anxiety, self-harm, infanticide, and suicide. So this is your trigger warning. If this is not an episode that you are in a good place to listen to, I don't take it personally. Click off of this episode right now. You can check out a ton of my other episodes, but if any of those topics are triggering for you, please just skip this over. All right. So I actually already recorded this episode and then I overwrote the file. So then I decided that I had to re-record the entire thing over again, just because it would be weird. Like if I recorded half on one day and half on another, I don't know, you just show up in a different energy each day. So I I'm re-recording this episode and I'm so excited to be bringing it to you because I think that this topic is super, super important. So as you guys know, I studied at University of Toronto. I did a bachelor's of kinesiology. And if in my fifth year of university, I decided that I wanted to do an independent research study. Now in other faculties, this would be called a thesis. And in my faculty, it's just called independent research study. So it's basically a thesis. It was an eight month long primary research project. And I did everything from communicating with the research ethics board to gathering participants, to analyzing the results, to doing the paper, everything like that. It ended up being 102 pages long, so you can just imagine how much work um, I sort of put into this, and I've just had it sitting on my computer, and I was, as I was moving from my old computer to my new computer, I came across this paper, and I thought, this is such an incredible piece of work that I did, and such an important topic that doesn't get a lot of attention, especially via the lens that I chose to analyze this illness through. 
So in today's episode, we are going to be talking about my paper on postpartum depression. Um, we are not going to be talking about, you know, tips and tricks for dealing with postpartum depression because that is outside of my scope of practice. I'm mainly just going to be talking about the research that I did, my findings of that research, and I'm going to present y'all with a really interesting thought process at the end to sort of maybe change the way that you think about certain mental illnesses and such. So let's, let's get right into this episode. So in September of 2019, I started uh, my thesis and I started it on postpartum depression because I had heard about the illness in a different class called stress and coping. As someone who was already deeply invested into the world of perinatal and women's health, um, or so I thought at the time I was already reading books and listening to podcasts. I had actually never heard about postpartum depression until I was in my stress and coping course, learning about it during, um, stress and coping. I actually did a really intense paper on postpartum depression because I just found it very interesting, very concerning. And I just found that there wasn't a lot of conversation going on about the illness. Now, typically, um, my sort of area of study is very musculoskeletal. I'm looking at injury, illness, and dysfunction of your tendons, ligaments, joints, alignment, things like that. So I also tend to gear a lot towards the physiology of things and sort of psychology and sociology was not really my area of expertise and it still isn't. So I really wanted to gain a better understanding of these things, which is why after I took that uh, stress and coping course, I knew that I really wanted to do my thesis or my independent research study on this topic. I approached a professor whose research really aligned with the angle that I wanted to take. I asked him if uh, he would be my supervisor and we went for it. So for the first half of my study, I was going back and forth with the research ethics board. And this was really, really exhausting because you can't study real humans or do many studies unless you have ethics. You can't do, I think, like any studies unless you have ethics. And it's really hard to study people who are pregnant. It's really hard to study people who were pregnant um, because you can't get ethics. They don't want to potentially cause harm to the mom. They don't want to cause harm to the baby. It's the same thing as how like there's not a lot of studies on resistance training or strength training during pregnancy that are like while the people are pregnant, a lot of the time it's retrospective. So a lot of the time they'll recruit people who lifted weights while they were pregnant and people who didn't lift weights while they were pregnant instead of studying those people while they're pregnant, because it's really hard to get ethics because they don't want to potentially harm the mother or harm the baby because we're dealing with such a a precious time of life during this, during this period. So yeah, so it was uh, really difficult to get ethics with postpartum depression as well, because the research ethics board didn't want me to potentially make matters worse because I'm in kinesiology. I am not a psychologist. I am not able to provide advice or anything in that ballpark. Um, I am allowed to do certain things with postpartum depression that are within my scope of practice, but counseling is not one of them. So they didn't want me to, you know, make things worse. They didn't want me to re-trigger, you know, suppressed emotion or suppressed feelings. And I had to have a lot of different tools in place and a lot of different points that allowed the ethics board to say, yeah, actually you can go ahead with this study. So after getting ethics, I went right into starting with a super, super intense literature review. And 
we're going to go, basically what we're going to go through today is we're going to go through what the literature is saying about postpartum depression. We're going to talk about the angle that I took for the study and the lens that I chose to look at the illness through. We're going to talk about my study itself, my methods, how I recruited participants, how did I ask them questions, what questions did I ask them. We're going to talk about um, some of the findings of my study, and then we're going to get into a little bit of a discussion about... Um, my, my findings. And I'm going to present you guys with a really interesting point that I want you to think about. And then we'll wrap it up at the end. So let's have a look at the literature. What is postpartum depression? So postpartum depression or PPD is a non-psychotic depressive episode that begins or extends into the postpartum period. It's characterized by feelings of guilt, shame, poor self-esteem, and harmful thoughts towards oneself or the child. Postpartum depression significantly alters the quality of life for both the mother and the baby because avoidant behaviors are very common, which can interrupt um, that relationship and that sort of intimacy as well as um, the bonding between the mother and the baby. So it's very, very hard to create that bond. Intrusive and hostile thoughts often infiltrate the minds of women with postpartum depression, causing them to wrestle with thoughts of suicide and or infanticide. But Postpartum depression is interesting because it doesn't only affect the emotional self. We have these different aspects of ourself. One of them is emotional self, and it doesn't just affect that emotional self, like we just talked about, your your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. It also poses issues with your social and your relational self. So for example, marital 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 dissatisfaction, um, lack of bonding between the mother and the baby, and social isolation have all been reported. So those are all other implications. So your emotional self, your relational self, and your social self is often impacted if you're experiencing postpartum depression. Visible minorities also may experience the psychosocial implications to a greater extent, with many reporting loneliness and lack of social trust. In 1998, Statistics Canada reported that postpartum depression affects 10 to 15% of mothers. However, no recent literature has been reported since. Few studies have explored the prevalence of postpartum depression in some small communities. However, the sample sizes have been too small to make inferences about the maternal population of Canada as a whole. As mental illness is on the rise, it could actually be hypothesized that postpartum depression is also following a positive linear trend. Now, when I wrote this po- this paper, this was just before the, p- the pandemic. I actually submitted it April 30th of 2020, which was like six weeks into the very first lockdown. So because, um, you know, postpartum depression and depression as a whole have been so impacted by the pandemic, I wonder how these numbers would look today. Um, postpartum depression, as we go through the paper, it's going to, you, you're going to hear a lot about loneliness, isolation, lack of trust, lack of social interactions. And I can only imagine how all of these would have been magnified by the pandemic. It's super, super interesting. Now, the prevalence of postpartum depression actually varies significantly worldwide. So I looked at some studies that looked at various countries. So Singapore, Malta, Denmark, and Malaysia had the fewest reports of postpartum depression, rating between 0 to 9%, whereas countries such as Italy, South Africa, and Costa Rica reported prevalence between 34 to 15%. That's super, super intense. 
During the 1980s, a series of population-based um, epidemiology studies found that PBD is actually very rare in China. In China specifically, it is between 0.9 and 2.4%. And this has actually been attributed to a well-established postpartum support and social networks within their culture. So this is actually very, very interesting. Following childbirth, Chinese mothers typically follow a practice known as doing the month. And there is a name for this in Chinese, but I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I would not do it any, any respect, but it is called in quotations doing the month, which actually may play a significant role in the prevalence of PPD. Doing the month refers to the period following childbirth by which mothers typically engage in practices such as physical activity, food consumption, maintenance of body warmth, and rest. These practices are believed to restore maternal health and prevent future disease. During this time, mothers and infants are typically taken care, of, taken care of by their families and their friends to sort of honor the burden of childbearing and take that load off of the mom. That's super intense. And that just shows how culture and how social structures can play such an intense role in our human experience as well as our experience of illness. In contrast, women in Canada and the United States often outlined that their postpartum period was, char was characterized by days spent alone at home with their baby and their partners waiting or with their baby waiting for the partners to return to return home from work. Women have also reported feeling ashamed about seeking help, feeling like a bad mother or feeling inadequate for not being able to carry out these household tasks on their on their own. At the time of this study, the Canadian Canada was using the EPDS as a diagnostic as a diagnostic tool, which is the Edinburgh Postpartum Depression Scale. However, this tool has actually been widely critiqued. It's a 10-item questionnaire that scores symptoms and then provides sort of an overall ranking following the tests. Many research have, has, have had questions about both the specificity and the sensitivity of this diagnostic tool because of its inability to capture the complex subjective experience of, po of postpartum depression. Wow, I literally can't talk today. <laughs> I think I had too much coffee. But um, I'm going to come back to this subjective experience of postpartum depression because that is what my study was all about. But for right now, we're just sort of going through the literature. But remember that subjective experience of postpartum depression. There are a bunch of other tools that physicians, psychologists have been using to diagnose postpartum depression. There's the PHQ-9. There are a whole bunch of different questionnaires and things like that. There's screening tools for both MDD and PDD. So there's, there's a whole lot, the Beck depression inventory, a lot of different like scales and tools that they have used. And they're mainly closed end, check the boxes, questionnaires. And I just believe that these have been widely inadequate, and I think that because of that, there could actually be far more mothers or far more people with postpartum depression that do not know they have it because these tools and these screening, screening questionnaires are just not specific enough. When we think about pregnancy and childbirth, it doesn't only pose significant alterations to your hormones, your physicality, your biological processes, but the event also leads to a massive change in sense of self and societal roles. We in society play different roles. I am a daughter. I am a, I was a student. I am an employee. I am a trainer. 
we have all of these roles that we play in society, right? But when you give birth, when parturition happens, your entire role in society changes. You are now a parent. You are now a person that gave birth. You are now someone who has to take care of another living, breathing human being. So I just think that the diagnostic tools that we're using are not specific enough to really capture all of the things that change in your life after parturition or after you give birth. Why are we using all of these questionnaires? Why are we using these check the boxes, this, that, and the other? And I think the answer lies within the diagnostic statistics manual or the DSM-5. Although depression during the postpartum period is commonly referred to as PPD or postpartum depression, the DSM-5 actually no longer distinguishes this disorder as its own unique entity, but rather class classifies PPD as depression with peripartum onset. Now, the DSM-5 the DSM-5 also specifies that the depressive episode must occur within the fe- the first 4 weeks following delivery. So depressive episodes outside of this 4 week uh 4 week specify here are just considered as MDD. So major depressive disorder. Now, there are a lot of feminist um, researchers who have critiqued this extensively, and they have strongly recommended that the onset specifier be increased to six months. So that's really interesting. But the other thing is that many feminist researchers have said that defining postpartum depression as depression with perinatal onset actually doesn't capture the illness as a whole and is also very disrespectful. Postpartum depression is unique. It is a very unique experience where all of your societal roles are changing. You have a little baby that is now completely reliant on you for their life for the next 18 years. There are significant changes in your physicality, your roles, your hormones, your biological processes, your physiology. There's so much going on that my the way that I think and the way that a lot of feminist researchers that I found in the literature think is that it's quite disrespectful to say postpartum depression is the same as other depression, just with a different onset. So yeah, I found that in the literature really, really interesting. But regardless of onset, women, families, and communities suffer the effects from from postpartum depression and delegitimizing such illness causes hysterical stigma that many women are faced with. Now, there are many risk factors associated with postpartum depression. We've talked in the research a lot about hippocampal volumes, which is the size of certain aspects of your brain, the size of your hippocampus. We've talked about glucocorticoids, which are associated with cortisol and stress. We've talked about oxytocin concentrations. All of these different things have been talked about, and these are the biophysical aspects. Although the biophysical aspects can provide important information about the ideology of PPD, they actually fail to recognize some of the important nuances of the lived experience, the social risk factors that may in fact provide a better framework for intervention. The public, the public Health Agency of Canada in 2013 outlined that a history of depression was one of the largest predictors of postpartum depression, along with a lack of social support and an increase in self-reported stress. However, many objective measurements proposed by doctors, for example, the Edinburgh Postpartum Depression Scale, do not match the subject, the subjective experience, and the legitimacy of the issue is then in question. 
Here's the thing. There are so many knowledge gaps within physicians as well as the general public when it comes to postpartum depression. Um, There was a study that was done in Australia, and they found that 70% of the respondents believed that postpartum was a debilitating condition that requires specialized treatment. Um, However, one in four respondents replied, don't know when they were asked about the signs and symptoms. So people know that depression is, postpartum depression is significant. However, they're not able to accurately identify some of the symptoms. Now, this is really important because early detection, early intervention can really, really improve improve outcomes and prognosis for the person that is suffering. So it's important that we know how to identify and how to reach out and ask someone, you know, how they're doing um, as early as we can. Another study found that 99.8% of their respondents, their sample size was 621. So 99.8% of 621 people had heard of postpartum depression, yet only 56.3 of them were able to correctly identify symptoms and risk factors. They also found that male, older, and less educated individuals present the lowest levels of knowledge about postpartum depression. One study found that although mothers had confined in their partners about their symptoms, their partners attributed their symptoms to the normal postpartum experience, often being told that you're just experiencing the baby blues. The lack of knowledge regarding symptoms and risk factors could present itself as a barrier to health-seeking behavior for those suffering with PPD. The American College of obstetrics and gynecologists outline that women respond best to treatment when diagnosed early. So early address. So addressing these barriers as early as possible is absolutely paramount for extending or for expediting the process of diagnosis and treatment. Let's talk about stigma. Okay. So according to Goffman, I'm sure we've all heard of Goffman by now, if you read literature or biomedical ethics or anything like that, you probably heard about Goffman. Um, so according to Goffman in 1963, stigma refers to an attribute that is deeply discrediting and is generally believed to be linked with conditions of illnesses that are under the individual's control. And this type of stigma has been super evident in the PPD literature. Here's, here are three problems with stigma, the problem of knowledge or lack thereof, the problem of negative attitudes, and the problem of discrimination. The literature also outlines three main types of stigma, which are personal, which are your beliefs about others, perceived, what do others believe about me, and self, which are your views and opinions about yourself. Personal stigmas came up in the postpartum depression literature a lot, outlining that mothers felt as though no one else in the world shared their feelings and they had some, they shared some of the intrusive thoughts that they were having. Other mothers outlined that they were inquisitive about how other mothers were feeling about their babies and the perceived stigma appeared to prevent many mothers from health, health seeking behaviors to help them through their symptoms. Many mothers outlined that they think women with postpartum depression are stigmatized and judged as being bad mothers because good mothers are those who feel unconditional love for their babies instead of feeling depressed, irritated, and wanting to escape. So here is a stanza from a study in 2014 by Thomas Sharp and Paxman. I felt like as a mother... I try, nothing I do is good. My family sees depression as a weakness, as something that's not real, just someone who is being stupid. 
When women ascribe to the cultural norms of what a good mother is, they put themselves at risk for both developing postpartum depression, and then they're also fearful to seek help due to fear and shame. In both stories and interviews, women have explained the sense of failure that they fear after not being able to reach society's standards of good mothering. Here's another stanza from Frank Hauser and Deffenbaugh, uh, 2017. What mother cannot soothe her own child for fear of her own actions? The idea of intensive mothering, I actually pulled from a biomedical ethics book. And that was interesting because that book had nothing to do with postpartum depression, but there's this idea of intensive mothering, and it refers to the belief that a mother must be nurturing, must provide continuous care, and must put the needs of her child above her own. Intensive mothering is actually tied within our common morality, and acting in accordance with our common morality presents itself as moral virtue. So common morality are the things that we sort of believe as a whole, you know, um, don't hurt people, don't kick someone. These are in our common morality. So this is an act of habit that acts in accordance with moral obligations. So these are our ideals and principles that we sort of ascribe to subconsciously because of our common morality that creates moral virtue, that creates moral obligation. So a child is in need, that is moral obligation. You know that you need to help a child that is lost, that fell off their bike, you know, something like that. It's sort of that moral obligation to help. When a mother cannot nurture their child, they can't establish a bond, and they cannot feel joyous for their presence, they are acting out of what we would call moral obligation. Rather than offering compassion and sympathy, um, we typically say they're a bad mother because they're not in accordance with our common morality. I hope you're following me. This can kind of help explain why mothers feel inadequate and why they're so fearful for reaching out. Their actions are not in accordance with our common morality. Nurture the young, take care of them, and put the needs of the young above their own. That's our common morality, and PPD typically interrupts that common morality, which is why it creates so much stigma. The literature lacks to outline aspects of the self that are outlined by PPD and what is it about the self that prevents many mothers from seeking help. I hoped to uncover that question during my study. Now, for treatment of postpartum depression, there's pharmacological intervention, there is talk-based therapy, there are all these different treatments for postpartum depression. Um, and psychology and psychology, psychiatry and psychology are actually not covered, but under OHIP. So this treatment protocol is not very great. And typically the most cost-effective is pharmacological intervention. Despite, um, despite there being, you know, a lot of tools out there for treatment, there are a lot of things that we could do a lot better. So have a listen to this stanza from, from folks, 2018. So I went for my six-week postpartum checkup at eight weeks. I was a couple of weeks late, but I saw the guy, you know, the OB who did the C-section. He basically he basically just looked at me like I was bawling in his office, telling, like crying and telling him about my experience and my fears. And he just gave me a prescription for antidepressants, then wrote me a bunch of repeats for, for Zoloft and offer, offered no follow-up. Although antidepressants may be actually very effective in symptom management, they fail to address how and why the illness manifested in the first place. It appears women with postpartum depression are lost within a system that is failing us. 
The pathophysiology of postpartum depression can't explain its manifestations. Trends and risk factors seem to vary significantly by country. Socioeconomic status and systems and processes of diagnosis appear to be not very accessible, and treatment is just inadequate. Why are the lived experiences, internal processes, and subjective stories of illness commonly left out of the literature? Arthur Frank is a very interesting researcher, and Arthur Frank would outline that some stories are left out of the literature because they are simply too hard to listen to. And this is where a narrative inquiry of illness comes into, pra- comes into place. Let's listen to another stanza from Fra- Frankenhauser and Deffenbaugh, 2017. I was alone most of the time, surrounded by bottles, breast, breast pump equipment, and dirty diapers. None of it touched me with the deep connection a mother should have with her child. His cries reached a pinnacle and scared of what I might do. I left him screaming in the crib, a soul in a large cage. I, I left him there to cry. Stonk and Kokonovic, 2016. This is another stanza. I could feel tension, fuzziness in my wrist. I actually, this is all coming back to me now. There was this stage where I was really uncomfortable being around knives, not because I thought I would harm myself, but because I was just sort of having these visions of like my, like jabbing myself in the stomach, like with a knife. These stories are hard to listen to because they enable the listener to feel sympathy. And through sympathy, we understand the thoughts and feelings of another and establish a concern for their welfare. Optimal patient care requires physicians to know these stories about someone's illness, about the patient's life, and the world that the patient lives in. How could we possibly offer support when we do not know the subjective nuances of the patient's illness? A narrative of illness is the individual's own perception of the illness that they have, the meanings that they ascribe to that illness, and the story that evolves from that illness. And that is from Frank, 1998, Arthur Frank, who sort of presented this idea of a narrative of illness, narrative inquiry. These narratives, these narratives of their stories and everything like that, they offer clinical significance as they go beyond the limits of medical reductionism and the dehumanization of pathological inquiry. For example, checking the boxes on some questionnaire. They go so much further beyond that. In order to provide adequate medical attention, Arthur Frank, 1998, would offer that empathetic attention that listens and validates an individual's story is imperative. Roles are unavoidable in our society. Each and every one of us plays a different roles at different aspects of our lives. Whether you're daughter, father, leader, worker, teacher, coach, you are playing a role. And the roles that are prominent in our medical setting often include the physician and the patient, two separate entities working towards a clinical solution. By telling stories, there is a potential for the relationship to sort of bridge that gap between the two roles, offering more than diagnosis and treatment, but a mutual relationship to restore health. Within the postpartum depression research, current narratives outline that their stories were not heard and their needs were not, their needs were not met and their time felt transactional. Here's a stanza from Folks 2018. My six-week visit... It was a waste of time, an absolute waste of time. She went in, I got weighed, she saw the baby, and that was it. 
absolutely no questions about how I was feeling at all. It was a social tea with somebody who is really afraid to ask you questions, ask you if you're feeling blue, because then you'll take up too much of their time. In this context, if, it, if the physician allowed the patient to tell their story, optimal care could have been achieved. Narrative illness, narratives of illness have this potential to reconstruct our idea of the therapeutic relationship. They allow for subjectivity of illnesses to be heard and attended to. In order to understand the individual, we need to transcend the individual beyond objective transactional sort of measurements of the current medical practice that we use. We must gain an understanding of the subjective individual in their situated reality. Because I was so on board with a narrative inquiry of illness and going transcending beyond those medical reductionist approaches where you're ticking boxes and checking lists and all of those things, I decided that a narrative inquiry of illness was the exact methodology I wanted to use for my study. Women with postpartum depression face challenges with stigma, morality, and identity. The potential for narratives of illness to uncover some of these complex ideologies is invaluable. Narratives are important for establishing an effective therapeutic working relationship, validating a patient's experience, making space for empathy and compassion, and help patients discover their new, their new self-concept by gearing treatment that fits their subjective realities. So I decided that I was going to use a narrative inquiry. This present study was approved by the Designated Research Ethics Board at University of Toronto in Ontario, Canada. With a recognition of the vulnerability of women with postpartum depression, several ethical considerations and procedures were put in place to protect the privacy of the participants. I conducted a narrative analysis to outline themes regarding subjective experiences. They were facilitated by using open-ended questions. However, the main goal for the researcher, aka me, was just to listen. The narratives were audio recorded, pitch altered, so I couldn't identify um, the person's voice to sort of decrease that bias. They were audio recorded, pitch altered, transcribed verbatim, and then fake names were assigned to all of the stories to protect, to protect the identity of the participants. I used a convenience sampling methodology where I posted on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, various, I advertised at various health clinics in Toronto, as well as in the greater Toronto area, as well as throughout Southern Ontario. I wanted to do convenience sampling just because when it comes to a narrative inquiry, people have to be willing to talk. They have to be ready to talk. They have to want to have their story heard and convenience sampling was the best way to go about that. The inclusion criteria was mothers who had experienced postpartum depression um, within one year following parturition or following childbirth. The exclusion criteria was people with active diagnosis, people with active um, illness, as studying this while the condition is still active can be very triggering and offering advice and support is outside of my scope of practice. So, the identities of the participants will be protected via fake names, and I actually chose the names uh, specifically very feminist aura names, which was kind of fun. So the names are Celeste, Luna, Estella, and Sky, as these are all um, very divine feminine names. The narrations took place in the participants' home, and I did this in order to 
decrease the white coat effect, often described by patients and their research participants. Sort of that white coat of you are being studied. Um, I wore very casual clothing, comfy clothing, and I just listened to what people had to say on their couch, in their kitchen, um, sitting at their table, having coffee together. So it was a very relaxed way to talk about this. And some of the conversations were 15 minutes long and some of them were three hours long. This allowed the participants to have full autonomy and did not restrict their stories to specific time constraints. Upon transcription of the stories, narrative recording narrative recordings were permanently destroyed and made sure that they were gone forever. In the analysis, I did an in-depth empirical examination of the subjective experiences. I was less focused on, you know, measurements and classification systems. I used a general set of questions to sort of guide coding and interpretation of the transcripts. The questions that I used provided a theoretical framework by which conclusions could be drawn. The main themes that I was interested in were social norms, morality, and self-identity. However, there were many other themes that were deemed significant and were also included for the study. Significance was determined by overall impact, prevalence in multiple participants, and or was identified by the participant as a significant aspect of their unique story. Although general themes were predetermined, it was actually really important to remain open and include all slash any themes that revealed themselves to ensure that the results of this study were not skewed and there wasn't any confirmation bias. Because participants had had autonomy to describe their story and illness in whichever way they felt necessary, personal narratives, um, archetypal narratives, and typal narratives were all included in the study and coded in the same fashion. The type of narrative told by one participant did not change its utilization. Narratives were read once through, start to finish without coding. Then I read them a second time and coded. Then I read them a third time and compared them to other narratives. This technique was used to increase the validity of the interpretation's accuracy. And it is hoped that by reading multiple times, the researcher, aka me, was able to truly capture the story being told. However, it should be noted that the researcher biases always have the potential to alter the story being told. So let's talk about the results of my finding. The main findings can be summarized as lack of knowledge, struggle to accept new realities, denial, and feelings of inadequacy and stigma. So first, let's talk about lack of knowledge and preparation. Many mothers describe that they felt uninformed about the prevalence and the severity of PPD. Let's hear from Celeste. I had learned a little bit about postpartum depression and anxiety from doing prenatal classes and such. So I learned a bit and I thought there may be a chance that it would affect me being predisposed to depression and anxiety in my life, but I didn't think too much of it. It didn't seem that important. And let's hear from the next one, which I believe was Luna. I honestly don't think I was prepared as I should have been. Like I said, I had learned about postpartum depression and even the midwives had talked to me about it a bit. Like, this is something you look out for, but I never expected it to happen the way that it did. Like, I had never heard of it. Again, 
you get the little sheets of paper in prenatal classes and they say this percentage of women experience the baby blues and this is what you might feel if you have that issue. And I remember getting a sheet of numbers that you could call for counseling, but that was the extent of the knowledge I had. I was like, okay, whatever. But I think I would have really benefited from actually knowing what mothers experienced and what they went through. Medical jargon, objective measurements, and scales and objective signs and symptoms may not provide an adequate understanding of the illness. Celeste's account outlines that it may have been more beneficial to actually know the subjective experience, thereby allowing her to relate, reflect, and understand the illness. Think about it. We get all these scales, we get all these things to look out for, we get all this information, but wouldn't it be really helpful to have someone who did experience PPD telling you about what they experienced in those prenatal to prenatal classes? That provides a relational self um, and allows you to relate to another person and can maybe provide a little bit more information about the subjectivity of the illness and what to look out for. A lot of moms described being hurried out of the hospital after their birth, which led to feelings of unpreparedness. They didn't feel like they were ready to go home and they were just sort of hustled out of the way. Let's talk about something else. Just a sec. One mom actually said that for her second birth, she had a postpartum depression on her first birth. And for her second birth, she actually hired a doula because the doula was able to provide a lot of aftercare that was very focused on the relationship, the bonding. It wasn't focused on baby's healthy, you're healthy, get out. It was more, how are things actually going? How can I help you? What do you need help with? Do you need help with nursing? Do you need me to braid your hair to help you feel better? Um, and there was a little bit more of a personal connection and more of a therapeutic relationship. So it was really interesting. Luna actually described that for her second birth, when she did have a doula, that aftercare was really, really important. And if she were to give birth again, and if she knows friends that are giving birth, that is the, the route that she would go through again. Now let's talk about the idea of a new reality. The process of becoming a parent causes an individual to reestablish their sense, their self-concept and their relational self and create an entirely, entirely new reality. Transitioning to parenthood takes only a matter of hours when you think about it. One minute you're yourself, the next minute you're a parent. So coming to terms with this new sense of self can be quite challenging. Luna struggled um, to accept this new reality. I'll read it to you. I remember sitting one time and I'm just sitting there and there's three of us trying to nurse this one baby. And I just felt outside of my body. Like I wasn't there nursing her. I was somewhere else watching what was going on thinking, this is ridiculous. Luna actually demonstrates that self-consciousness extends far beyond the human body, and this idea was presented by Aho and Aho in 2008, which discusses how life interruptions, crisis, and new realities help individuals realize that their self extends far beyond the flesh. Estella experienced some of these challenges with her new self-concept as well, outlining that she didn't feel comfortable in her own skin, she felt like she was wearing a mask, and she described this a lot through her narrative inquiries saying that she could see it in pictures. And when she looks at pictures, she doesn't even recognize the person in those photos because she felt like who she truly was, was sort of locked up elsewhere. And this was while she was experiencing postpartum depression. She just felt like she was wearing this complete mask and her true self was gone and it was in a different place. 
1952 stated that the way other perceives us shapes how we perceive ourselves. And Estella sort of went into how her partner deemed her illness as a mask, a metaphor, and that wasn't who she truly was. So the way that others perceive us shapes the way we perceive ourselves. So because Estella's partner felt like she was wearing a mask, she also saw herself as wearing that mask. Let's talk about symptom onset. So within the findings of my study, um, some of the symptom onsets were as soon as they got home from the hospital, some were a couple of days, and some was actually four weeks following postpartum. Another was four months following postpartum. So it's really interesting how that four-week specifier outlined for the DSM-5 was proven um, in my study not to be sensitive enough or not to be a large enough amount of time. So that's pretty interesting. Estella wasn't able to quantify sort of when her symptoms began, but this is what she said. It happened right away, but it also didn't. It was one of those things where Everything, it just slowly built up and then it came down like a bag of bricks. I'm great with timelines, but during that period, it's all sort of a blur. So this is only one narrative, but there were many narratives that that four-week specifier was just not enough time. The next finding was denial preceding a breakdown. Experiencing postpartum depression deviates from our common morality, like I found in the literature. Nurture the young above the needs of our own. And then, like I said, these women who experience postpartum depression face societal standards of what being a good mother is. And this discourse makes many women experiencing PPD feel that they for are immoral, wrong, and this can cause them to feel a lot of denial. Denial prevents or delays help-seeking behaviors and was commonly found during my narrative inquiry. I didn't really realize I was having an issue. I knew I was having these weird thoughts and thought again, and you know, it'll, it'll just pass. You had a rough week. You had a rough pregnancy. Those things can cause issues. It's no big deal. My husband kept telling me for months and I needed help, but I told him he was crazy. You know, nothing wrong with me. I'm just being a protective mom. It's okay. I wish I listened and maybe got help sooner. That way I could have been healthier longer. When individuals propose ideologies that challenge our moral character, the ego quickly acts to resist such claims known as denial. During Luna's narrative, she outlined that she had not experienced PPD with her previous pregnancies and birth. She is a great mother that takes pride in being protective of all of them. An illness, especially mental illness, is often deemed as deviance from that common morality and specifically moral character. Because when Luna's husband proposed that she may be ill, long-term societal standards and discords led Luna to believe that the illness with the illness was interchangeable with being a bad mother, thereby causing her ego to deny any claims that interfered with her moral character. Now, I am not proposing that experiencing mental illness is immoral. I'm proposing that we have society, societal, oh my God, I am proposing that we have socially created an ideology that mothers experiencing illness are deviants from our common morality. And this this social construct causes many mothers to deny their symptomology and possible pathology. There was something wrong, but I didn't want to admit it. There was a lot of denial because for me, 
it didn't, the, the depression didn't feel like it did when I was younger. It didn't feel like those little things that I had it. There were these little warning signs that I probably should have paid more attention to. Um, like terrible thoughts, uh, things I absolutely would not have acted upon, like giving them a bath. What if one of them just went under and I didn't rush to scoop her up? It was always the what ifs. They were very vivid. If I let them slip under the, the under the tub, of course I would have run to grab them. But it was that two-second thought of, what if I don't? And just driving to, to go somewhere. There were deep canals. What if I just let go of the steering wheel? But the thing was, I couldn't. It's just hard because some of these things you never say out loud. Estella's account outlines a very important aspect of narratives that was proposed early in the paper. Some stories are too hard to listen to. In combination with both denial and suppression, Estella has kept some of these aspects of her story locked away for over 15 years. Although Estella had experienced depression in the past and sought help and treatment for it, she didn't want to admit that she was experiencing PPD. Estella's story outlines a very important phenomenological construct. Humans are situational beings. I went a year and a bit before I got professional help. Even though my outcome with medication wasn't great, it was just a year of getting by, and I wonder how things would have been different if I sought help faster, you know, if I stopped living in denial and shame. Denial was prevalent in the narratives and presented itself as a significant theme amongst almost all of the participants that participated in my study. In order to improve prognosis, it's super important to attentively address denial. Many of the participants also described a breaking point by which their symptoms and emotions became greater than their perceived level of coping. The participants typically described um, public outbursts, and when those outbursts happened in public, they, they realized that something was wrong. Um, but here is uh, a narrative that I'm going to read. It was the third night in that I just started thinking that if I couldn't run away because that plan didn't seem logical, I didn't know how I could possibly leave and be okay with it. I would always be thinking of my husband and my baby, and I thought... If I couldn't run away, then killing myself would be probably the best option. And I thought that if I did that, it would probably be better for my baby. I thought maybe he would be better without me. But when I had that third night in and the suicidal thoughts started coming, that's when I started to have a panic attack. I called my midwife and I asked her what to do. And her suggestion was to go to the hospital. And I did. Celeste's breaking point is characterized by two major themes, accumulated stressors and a, a desire to escape via suicide. Sky also discussed suicidal intent was a marker of her breaking point. I was probably eight months postpartum. Yeah, it's all coming back to me. My husband had gone on an annual trip with his dad. I will admit I was kind of upset he was going, but I also understood that he needed a break too. I'd called a friend for the night for advice because I wasn't feeling so great. I'd gotten a fight with my sister over something really silly, really silly, really silly. I burned the box pizza I was making for dinner and my baby would just not stop screaming. 
During the call, my friend basically gave me the suck it up, get over it mentality. I don't want to blame her for my depression, but that's when it all sort of accumulated and I was done. I started planning how I would kill myself and when to do it so that my husband would be home in time to take care of the baby. My husband ended up coming home in the morning rather than the evening due to the weather, and I broke down. I told him everything. I knew I needed help, and I knew that we needed help. Sky's breaking point also outlines that there wasn't just one factor that contributed to her suicidal intentions, but rather a buildup of multiple different factors. She outlines the very importance of our words and how our words can easily be a tipping point pushing someone over the edge that is already in a vulnerable position. Without making this podcast nine hours long, um, many of the other participants described their breaking points as well from, you know, planning their own um, suicide to running away to sort of some sort of big event that preceded them seeking help. Let's talk about my next finding, feelings of inadequacy and intensive mothering. As described earlier, society has created a standard of what a good mother is, and many mothers felt as though they were failing to meet this standard. This feeling of of inadequacy manifested both before and after prognosis. Luna struggled with feeding her daughter and had additional home-based support to help with that. And difficulty breastfeeding was also uh, reported a lot in the literature, and it causes a lot of mothers to feel like they are inadequate. How can you not feed your baby? What if you can't feed your baby? You're not a good mom if you're giving baby formula. We've always heard the slogan, breast is best, and that's been circulating in the maternal and pediatric world quite a bit. So when women who can't breastfeed or can't get a good latch or don't have um, good supply or maybe their their milk's already dried up, they can really have this, this feeling of being inadequate because we're always feeding this narrative that breast is best. Estella described that seeing other mothers going about their normal lives also made her feel really, really poorly. She was seeing moms be super moms and going, doing all these things when she could barely get out of bed in the morning. And that made her also feel really inadequate. This is known as the social comparison theory. Social comparison theory is the idea that people determine their own personal worth based on how they compare to others in their social settings. And this theory helps us really understand why so many women um, and so many mothers and so many people feel inadequate when they are experiencing postpartum depression. Now, something I found interesting was that um, some of the participants outlined that they had seen media that was very empowering. One day, Estella was watching TV and a celebrity was publicly discussing her struggles. Let's listen to the stanza. It made me feel almost more empowered that someone else was going through it. Someone else who has luxury and money and fame that it could happen to them. It wasn't just a stay-at-home mom in rural Ontario. It was someone who has all these resources at her fingertips. It was knowing it happens to anyone, no matter what your socioeconomic standards are. Like, it happens. Celeste also experienced a similar empowerment from the media. I think awareness and more hearing more personal stories. I found that what ended up really helping me was following a couple on Instagram um, and a couple of different accounts of moms who were really open about what they had been going through and their struggles. And having that solidarity made me feel a million times better. 
Despite feeling empowered by the media and validation from her children, Estella still feels as though she was a poor mother, and she describes wanting to go back and do it all over again despite her children telling her time and time again that she is and was and always will be amazing. This finding validates the needs for narratives and personal stories both in the media and in the therapeutic setting. Understanding the experiences of mothers can challenge our current social construction of what we believe a good mother to be and reestablish our understanding of the true lived experience during the postpartum period. My next finding was stigma. Stigma stigma delegitimizes the subjective experience of illness, deeply discrediting its role and labeling those with such illness incorrectly. Mothers who experience PPD are often stigmatized as damaged, ungrateful, hysterical, incapable, and inadequate. And this prevents a lot of mothers with a lot of fear to seeking help because they feel like they're going to be thought of crazy and that someone's going to take their baby away. This social stigma of, you know, mental illness being crazy caused Luna to feel really fearful to seek help because she was also worried about her babies being taken away, which came up in her narrative many, many times. Luna is not alone in this mental process. I was afraid to tell the doctors I had planned my suicide. I didn't want them to think I was unfit to be a mother. I was just having a hard time. I wasn't crazy. I certainly wasn't normal. And I wasn't crazy. I tried to talk to my mom about what's going on. We're really close, but I knew she would instantly think I was going insane. I love my mom, but I didn't want her to think I was going crazy. Women experiencing postpartum depression are often told that they're experiencing the baby blues, a condition of altered mood following childbirth. The baby blues is viewed in society as normal. It's a normal entity during the postpartum period that does not require treatment or intervention. The baby blues refers almost exactly to the definition of stigma, an attribute that is deeply discrediting. When women suffering postpartum depression were told it was just the baby blues, they felt as though their stories actually weren't heard. Here's a stanza. I became very withdrawn. I would cry at night. I would panic a lot, but it was not, it was still not clicking in that there's something wrong. I was told it was the baby blues. I was told it was just an adjustment. I was told it was my hormones because I had two kids back to back. My basically, my doctor basically told me I didn't give my body enough time to heal from having my firstborn. So I was like, okay, medical professional, you, you listen to them. I was extremely isolated. It appears that the line between normal suffering during postpartum when is abnormal suffering during postpartum is incredibly blurred and stigma really facilitates this discourse. So the findings in this section really showed me that stigma creates this idea that suffering is normal and the baby blues are normal and thereby do not require intervention. This line between normal and abnormal suffering is very, very blurred and stigma perpetuates that further and further. My next finding was this was different. Although brief, three of the participants outlined that their postpartum depression symptoms were very unique and unlike anything that they had ever experienced, especially the participants that had experienced um, depression in the past. They outlined that this was completely different, which thereby um, confirmed my hypothesis and my sort of 
position that postpartum depression is different and should be called postpartum depression, not depression, perinatal onset. We have three mothers who had experienced depression before coming forward and saying this was so incredibly different. And I think that this was incredibly powerful. I have uh, five different stanzas on this topic that I'm not going to read because they're very long. Um, but they, they were really, really powerful in confirming that, yeah, you know what, this is different. And because it's different, we need to look at it differently. We need to treat it differently and we need to act completely differently in how we manage this illness. As for the discussion, the narratives in this study clearly identified and demonstrated the dire need for stories and lived experiences in the literature for both societies, mothers, and physicians to get a better understanding of mental illness during the postpartum. Lack of knowledge not only facilitates societal stigma, but it also prevents opportunity to, to educate and allow recognition of symptoms among mothers. Providing objective scales, lists, and criteria simply does not it's just not sufficient to facilitate a true understanding of postpartum depression. Women have outlined the powerful role of stories and the implementation of said stories in their education, in their prenatal classes, and in their patient-physician education seminars could really, really help them. They said that these stories they were hearing on TV and stories that they were seeing on Instagram um, were really, really helping them in seeing other people go through it. So I think that more stories should be present between these these interactions between the patient and the healthcare provider as well as um, in educational settings. I think that physicians should become more aware of the phenomenology of the human experience and consider the entire identity and reality shift that these women experience during the process of becoming a mother. Understanding this phenomenological shift can come from both reading narratives, but also taking the time to listen to the stories of the patients in front of them. It's important for physicians to understand the complexity of the cultural and historical human condition and realize that this complex ideology cannot be reduced to universal intervention and universal treatment protocols. Without the knowledge and aid of narratives and personal accounts, patients are lifted from their engagement within the world and they're placed into quantifiable classification systems commonly referred to as medical reductionism. This reductionist process does not facilitate coping, me me coping measures and interventions for accepting new self-concept and new realities. I do not disregard the effectiveness of pharmacological intervention in antidepressants, but I propose that these alone do not provide mothers with the adequate education and tools to integrate their old self-concept and reality with their new self-concept and reality. Both the literature and the results of my study um, found that there was a large focus on the wellness of the baby, prioritizing their health um, and their development and their growth. I'm not proposing that we make any changes to neonatal wellness checks, but rather a proposition that we deviate from, from our neoliberalist approach and provide equal time addressing the health of the baby and the health of the mother. Screening for postpartum depression should be implemented during routine prenatal and postnatal appointments. They should be implemented prior to hospital discharge and implemented into postpartum wellness checks. I propose that we treat the mother and the baby as a collective entity as the health of one directly influences the health of the other. 
By implementing such practice, we place more of an emphasis on the systems and structures to screen for potential complications rather than requiring mothers to reach out and disclose. We know that disclosure can be emotionally taxing, and by implementing such procedures, we facilitate an environment where women may feel more comfortable discussing possible manifestation of illness. Our current individualistic perspective that places a patient's health in their own hands is not beneficial for those experiencing postpartum depression as stigma, judgment, and fear create barriers for them to seek help. When such measures are implemented, it is hypothesized that early onset of symptom manifestation will be determined, thereby allowing intervention during the acute phase to happen It's really important that we absolutely demolish delegitimizing discourse and stigma regarding vaginal birth versus cesarean birth, breastfeeding versus bottle or formula feeding, gentle parroting versus authoritative parroting. These discourse and these ideas need to be eradicated from health promotion and individuals that engage in such discourse need to be held accountable when presented with it. From this, it is clear that a pragmatic shift from what we believe to be a good mother needs to be established. It is the responsibility of all individuals in a society to facilitate this shift. We need to further educate physicians on the differences between baby blues and postpartum depression. This will occur by understanding that women ascribe to such illness via narrative inquiry. We need narrative inquiry. We need to understand women via this narrative of illness so that we can create a better therapeutic working relationship. This is perhaps my most controversial recommendation in the discussion of my study. And although controversial, I am not afraid to talk about it and I am open to discussion. If you'd like to discuss this with me, please let's get in touch and um, let's figure it out. So Although controversial, I propose that we as as a society have actually confused the terms commonality and normality. Normality is a highly subjective experience that cannot be reduced to quantifiable measures, scales, or numbers. The human experience has infinite capabilities. Attempting to determine normality is entirely a social construct. This brings rise to the question with regards to what normal versus abnormal suffering is defined as. I propose that due to the epidemiology of postpartum depression, it is a common condition that affects thousands of Canadians annually. However, I also propose that experiencing postpartum depression is not a normal experience. It is a common experience. Although we've been shifting our focus towards normalizing mental health, I fear that we are creating a new discourse that deems suffering, suicidal thoughts and intention, and depression as normal. Here here is where I'm going to go into this a little bit more. If you go for blood work and your blood iron levels are normal, then it does not require intervention, right? If you 
have knee pain and you know, you go to the doctors and they say, yep, everything looks normal. You're all good. That does not require intervention. If a condition is deemed as normal, this means that the inter that the condition does not require medical attention, intervention, or support. Women experiencing postpartum depression do not only require intervention and support, but they need intervention and support and they deserve intervention and support. Normalizing such conditions not only prevents mothers from deeming their experience clinically significant enough to seek help, but it also invalidates the legitimacy of the condition altogether. When we think from a historical perspective, historically feminine health and conditions such as endometriosis, vaginismus, and adenomyosis have been deemed as normal, thereby not requiring medical intervention and delegitimizing the, pres the presence of the illness altogether. This has created long-term negative health ramifications. I really want to bring awareness to the fact that normalizing feminine suffering has been prevalent in the literature for many years. Suffering with postpartum depression is abnormal, but we as a society need to accept, listen, and advocate for resources to support individuals suffering with the illness. Creating discourse that postpartum depression is normal will contribute to a laundry list of barriers to health-seeking behaviors. But understanding and accepting that postpartum depression is common will facilitate a relationship where women feel comfortable to bring up their concerns and engage in normal conversations and have their concerns addressed by their physician rather than being dismissed as another case of the baby blues. I understand that this proposition may be controversial, and I know that we've been working towards the shift in normalizing mental health, but I fear as though we have confused the words common and normal. Mental health, um, mental health differences and mental health concerns and experiencing suboptimal sub mental health are very, very common, but they are not normal. Suffering is, should not be part, severe suffering should not be part of the human experience. So normalize conversations around mental health, but do not normalize the condition because this creates discourse that it does not require intervention. In conclusion, postpartum depression is a serious mental illness that affects thousands and, ten, and thousands and thousands of people around the world, regardless of socioeconomic status education, and geographical location. The symptoms fall along a spectrum and can cause mothers to feel depressed, anxious, and also struggles with thoughts of self-harm or infanticide. I think postpartum depression, we really need to look at it through a narrative lens so that we can really pull the subjectivity of the illness from such objective measures. Medical reductionism does not serve postpartum depression well, as it does not account for the individual needs and wants of the patient. One of the limitations of the study was the relatively small sample size, but one of the strengths of this study were the researcher is a woman herself, which helped which helped me um, establish a stronger sense of trust and rapport with the with the participants. Another strength of this study is it is actually one of the few narratives of postpartum depression. Limitations were a relatively homogenous sample with regards to ethnicity and socioeconomic status. I really tried to diversify the sample, um, but it was it was relatively homogenous, which is definitely a limitation to this study. I was able to look extensively into both who and what was not being said, which was really interesting. 
This increased the likeliness that I was able to retell the participants' stories as accurately as possible. Looking forward, I think it's going to be really important to utilize a narrative approach with a larger, more diverse sample and understand how lived experiences may be similar and different. The findings of this study emphasized a need for improved screening, awareness, psychoeducation on the illness, and improved social support for the maternal population and their families. If you or someone that you know has been experiencing postpartum depression or you think that they might, I highly encourage you to reach out to a psychologist, psychiatrist, um, social worker, master's social worker, or your general healthcare practitioner. Unfortunately, the way that society currently is, you will likely have to bring up the conversation first as it is unlikely that your healthcare provider will start that conversation. I empower you to start that conversation with your loved ones. I empower you to start that conversation with your friends, with your family, and I empower you to start that conversation with yourself. If you feel as though postpartum depression might be something that is affecting you or could affect you in the future. I thank you guys so much for listening to this estrogen empire podcast. And I know it was very research intensive, but this was a massive piece of work that I just skimmed over. I actually didn't go through the whole thing. Um, I'm thinking about trying to get this research published. I'm going to reach out to my professor and see if he's able to help me with that. Or I might post it on my website, bethanyspears.com under the estrogen empire tab. This piece of research I think is really important because like I said, it's one of the few narrative inquiries on the internet of postpartum depression. So I really thank you for listening. I empower you to share this episode with someone who you think might benefit from learning more about postpartum depression. And I thank you guys so much for listening. I love you. It is a beautiful life. Spread the message, share the knowledge, build the empire. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, it would mean the world to me if you could leave me an Apple podcast review. This podcast cannot and will not grow without your help. So if you have a moment, a little review goes a long way. If you'd like to stay in touch with the Crazy Beautiful Life community, you can follow me on Instagram at B-E-E.S-P-I-E-R-S. That's at B Spears on Instagram. And you can join the Crazy Beautiful Life Facebook group for exclusive content, one-on-one time, and all the empowerment that you need. Have a wonderful day. And remember, it is a beautiful life.